Part 4. We are now ready to invite the fourth witness. In the present situation, it can only be one of the first post-Socratic thinkers. Having heard the third witness, we understand why post-Socratic thought is part of the picture of ancient European city culture. After 399 BC, the year of Socrates' execution, it was an open secret that the city could declare certain internal observers of its activities to be enemies and kill them. The polis, on the other hand, knew that it was defined by its judicial murder of its best citizen witness. It could only exculpate itself by allowing post-Socratic thought. The discovery led to two constructs in the city consciousness that were not philosophical in a precise sense, but were decidedly post-Socratic. As we have seen, philosophy is a medicine for the incurably unjust city. Plato administered it in cleverly calculated doses. We are informed about the risks and side effects in the theatre, in city conversation, and in retrospect by Diogenes Laertius. This source tells us that Socrates was followed not just by the long platonic revenge, but also by the rise of the theatre players. Their catchword was twofold, kinicism and cosmopolitanism. Modern users of these words do not realise that both initially meant the same thing because their meanings have diverged in two different directions over time. The word cosmopolites and the word kinikos developed in the same wave from the same post-Socratic dilemma. The master was dead. How should people investigate the life of a people in the city in future when the city, as a murderer of philosophers, had demonstrated that it intended to limit theory. Of the three possible answers here, Plato gave the first by institutionalising philosophy as a didactic subversion in the middle of the polis. His idealism provoked, as it were, a new kind of self-observation of the city by super-citizens, by Uranian witnesses who see urban things with heaven's eyes which inevitably leads the real city permanently disgraced in relation to its own concept. The other two answers came from Plato's rival, Diogenes of Sinope, and they are respectively paraphilosophical and a parody of philosophy. We should not forget that cosmopolitanism first began as the evasive reply of a post-Socratic philosopher to the potentially life-threatening question of where he was actually at home. Laertius captured the episode in a single short sentence. Quote, Asked where he came from, he replied, I am a cosmopolitan. End quote. This has become legendary as the first appearance of the word cosmopolitan. Since ancient times, beautiful souls have translated it nicely as citizen of the world, thinking they are expressing something deep and soul-searching in line with the stoical tradition. People forget who the speaker was. Most of all, they neglect to add the key question for any kind of post-Socratic thought. To which place has the wise observer brought his fellow men and women to safety when he lectures and studies? Diogenes' witty words contain one of the rare enlightening statements in this rather murky affair. The real light of his reply flashes out when we translate cosmopolites not as citizen of the world, 
but as citizen of the universe. But suddenly this reveals a new position of the speaker. Diogenes acting like a literary clown, unabashedly assumed a divinely eccentric position, like Lucian and others after him. Briefly becoming like Zeus himself, he judged others as if he were watching from the cosmos. Main place of residence, the universe. Second place of residence, the trash can near the old gymnasium. In principle, anyone who lives so far out, and only phenomenally in the trash can, will not worry needlessly about incidents here. After all, he or she basically lives in the divine quarter, and the gods are famous for their eternal grins and their cool indifference to mere human destinies. But how does the cosmically apathetic person avoid the accusation of hubris? Socrates died for the accusation of impiety. Should a paradist of the gods like Diogenes be any less at risk? But this shows us how cheekiness can save life. The best cynical strategy is to hide the universe's view of the ridiculous city behind the eyes of dogs. In other words, philosophy becomes God, and God becomes a dog, and mingles in the crowd as an observer from below. This gives rise to cynicism as a habit and ethos. At first, cynicism only exists as a way of seeing. It provides a viewpoint for sovereign, covert investigators against the city. Who can talk of godlessness in this context? Quote, One day he saw a woman kneeling before the gods in an ungraceful attitude, and wishing to free her of superstition, according to Zoilus of Perga, he came forward and said, Are you not afraid, my good woman, that a god may be standing behind you? For all things are full of his presence, and you might be put to shame. End quote. Heraclitus of Ephesus was the first to relate the story, which, as we can see, did not survive the journey from Athens unscathed. When Diogenes of Sinope quotes it, his tone and voice is mocking. We can almost imagine him saying, Everything is full of philosophers. And even better, everything is full of dogs. In any case, a dog sees much of what citizens would rather close their eyes to. The next question is, where are the real city-dwellers in this game who are being so stubbornly watched now by philosophers imitating God and tramps imitating dogs? The man with the universal eyes has a ready reply. The dreadful reply that went down in the history of European ideas. Quote, he lit a lamp in broad daylight and said as he went about, I am looking for a man. One day he shouted out for men, and when people collected, hit at them with a stick, saying, It was men I called for, not scoundrels. End quote. This anecdote, the most famous of antiquity, is the other cornerstone of negative political theory. Just as Baudelaire would think in solitude at midnight and find his salvation in dissatisfaction with himself, Diogenes would think about himself being able to play the master to the dog he portrayed. His moments as master occurred at noon when enough people were present to insult and when the sun stood high enough in the sky that Alexander the Great could be sent away from it. 